You're listening to KOOP Hornsby Austin 91.7 FM and on the web at koop.org. Welcome to Issues for Your Tissues, the definitive discourse on reproductive health and well-being with your host, Katie Vitale. The views and opinions expressed on Issues for Your Tissues may not necessarily reflect those of Co-op, its board of directors, or anyone else anywhere else. The information offered is not a substitute for the advice of a licensed medical professional, which I am not. Thanks for tuning in to Issues for Your Tissues. Welcome back to Issues for Your Tissues. I'm your host, Katie Vitale. I'm excited, as always, to be joining you on another Thursday evening here in Austin. You might be listening at 91.7 FM or koop.org, where we're streaming live all of the time. You might be tuned in to KOOP HD1, HD3 Hornsby, or listening within the next two weeks at Radio Free America, or further into the future, on the podcast. So links to all of that are available for you at koop.org. If you go to the schedule and click on issues for your tissues, you can find all of those and more. It's where I like to start all my searches because I can find most everything there. And it's my favorite website. So you can also become a member since we're the only cooperative radio station in the state of Texas. And uh, if you have any questions, you can also email me, katie at coop.org. It's, it's all here for you. I'm here for you. Uh, we're, we're here for each other. You're part of the community, no matter where you are. And 
this is the, the finale of our May is for Moms on issues for your tissues. We've been talking a lot about maternal health here in the Lone Star State since this is one of the most dangerous places in the industrialized world to deliver a child, which is it's, it's a painful thing to say, to have to say, or to recognize or accept or admit to ourselves. It's, it's, it's a horrible thing, and I'm, I'm shocked by it. But you've heard me and my guests say regularly that the, the adverse maternal uh, outcomes are worse, are like twice as bad for women of color. And I wanted to spend this hour talking more about that. So I invited uh, the renowned Monica McLemore, who is with the Bixby Center for Global Reproductive Health. That's at the University of California, San Francisco. Uh, You can find her online. You can find her on Twitter. You can find her on uh, everywhere, uh, the, you know, everywhere that you need to be reading because she's she's putting information out there and giving us uh, a, a perspective as not just uh, as, as clinician scientist, uh, but with a, as a nurse and with a master's of public health and a PhD. Her diverse experiences are closely aligned with uh, producing evidence to assist nurses to meet women wherever they are specifically by designing patient-centered studies that enhance the knowledge and base of nurses who work in gynecology, sexual and reproductive health across the lifespan, which includes, of course, uh, labor and delivery and everything before and after that. So I wanted to say thank you so much for joining tonight. Uh, Dr. McLemore, how are you doing? I'm doing great, and I'm so grateful that you um, have me on the show. Thank you very, very much. Well, I, I was so pleased to be able to uh, to get this time to talk with you about this issue that is so pressing, uh, especially as we see the access to reproductive health care diminishing on a on a daily basis, not just here, but in other states a- across the country. It's shocking to me to see this and shocking to see the numbers uh, that that I think are associated or uh, that are related to that kind of policy. Uh, let's, I don't even know where to start. Let's start with, uh, let me ask you, how did you get mm-hmm. interested in in healthcare delivery? Like, did, did you decide that you wanted to be a nurse when you were a little girl and then it just grew from there? Or how, how did you determine that this is the thing you need to do? <laughs> well, I appreciate the question. And, and, for people who have seen me in public, I say this all the time. So I was a preemie in 1969. So I'm turning 50 years old today, uh, this year. And it, it's, it's fascinating and both horrifying to me that health outcomes have not improved almost in a century, but that I'm almost 50 years old and, and that we still see poor birth and reproductive outcomes in, in black people and people of color. So that's annoying. And when I was eight years old, I, um, I said to my mother, who was an investment banker, um, you know, I, if, I, if, you know, if I grow up and I get to be a big person, I want to be a nurse. Now, I said this to her in the context of there, there had been no people in my family who worked in healthcare. care. Um, my father was a Marine, a cop, a lawyer, and then a judge. And my mother had worked in retail, and then she moved her way up in, in the banking system. So no one was in healthcare, <laughs> but I was so touched by the nurses who, who cared for me across my life. I've always been a very sickly 
child. And it, I just thought to myself, I spent so much time with nurses, I might as well become one. And so when I was eight, I said I was going to be a nurse. And so I finished high school and I had fellowships and scholarships to go to school because it was back in the day when the public used to invest in the future healthcare workforce and we invested in public education. And so I also came out of out of high school at a time when there was a severe nursing shortage. And so I was able to go to state schools. I say this to people all the time. I have three degrees and they're all from state public funded institutions uh, because taxpayers thought it was really important to have a well-educated workforce to take care of people in healthcare. And so I, I was accepted as a baccalaureate student to be a nurse. And that's what I studied. And I've been a nurse since 1993. So that's how I, I got to healthcare and I didn't answer your question around women's reproductive health care, because I will tell you that's all I've ever done uh, within nursing. And when I was a sophomore uh, at the College of New Jersey, um, I got an opportunity. I was taking a class called uh, Feminism, Power and Privilege, and my, math, uh, my uh, baccalaureate uh, advisor taught this course. And it was the first time I ever really understood you know, what, what everyone else in the world knows, and that is how we care for uh, people with the capacity for pregnancy, um, babies, whoever, um, is a barometer on how well we're doing as a society. And in global context, in global settings, people understand that. If you, if you don't have good outcomes for moms and babies, something's wrong with your health system. <laughs> so um, I took that class, and it changed my life. And I knew I wanted to take care of childbearing families, and that's all I've I've done for the last 27 years. Yeah. So when, when we talk about this, uh, this care of women and children and infants as, as a barometer for how good the uh, country is doing, uh, what does it say when we spend more on healthcare in this country per capita than any other industrialized nation on earth? And we love to brag that we have the best healthcare in the world, but our rates for things like maternal mortality are getting worse by the year over the past few years. When, when did this start? Yeah. And what do you think started this? Well, I mean, truth be told, I'll, I'll use preterm birth as an exemplar because this is the one that is most clean and most obvious. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we had had a stable preterm birth rate in the United States for 15 years until three years ago. And, the preterm birth rate had always been pretty stable in the United States and worldwide prematurity. So that's when babies come too early before 37 weeks gestation. Um, worldwide, it's estimated to be between 9 and 10%. But in the United States, it has always been relatively stable, around 11%. And it started creeping up three years ago. And, you know, prematurity and low birth weight um, are instant indicators that, that are really, really important barometers of the public. But we've known about maternal mortality, and unfortunately, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, up until uh, a couple of weeks ago, had not reported uh, maternal death statistics since 2007. But we've always known that there, there were between 700 and 900 deaths of women who died from uh, potentially preventable causes during childbirth, pregnancy, and postpartum. We also know that there have been about uh, 50,000 near misses per year. And so people say, well, what's in their miss? Well, when you, when you live after you've had your birth, um, and we've had great public cases around this in the last year, uh, seeing with uh, Beyonce and Serena Williams both telling their birth stories to Vogue, 
um, and you live and you have severe complications or you have severe things that happen to you during your pregnancy, that's what we consider to be near misses. You don't necessarily die, but you do have some, some very uh, life-threatening or situations and circumstances that require a higher level of intervention. Right. There's, so, there's a, a whole slew of things that can be not as bad as dying, but pretty bad. Exactly. exactly. And, and I think another thing that we don't really talk about is the trauma that people experience. Yes. Um, you know, I was at I was at the March for Moms uh, Mother's Day weekend in Washington D.C., and there were several people who told their near miss stories, where people spent you know days in the intensive care unit, having massive transfusions, uh, being in positions where they almost died, and and not being able to to see their babies, you know, after being newly postpartum. I mean, just the toll that that takes on you as a person. You know, I think I think we have an even huger, you know, or a larger crisis in terms of the near misses, um, let alone the actual people who unfortunately die, particularly when we know that it is estimated between 60 and 70 percent of maternal deaths are, come from preventable causes. So it's even more shameful. It's, it's not even just that we have this, this shameful disparity where black and brown women are bearing the greatest burden of maternal death. But that we know that 60 to 70 percent of them could potentially be preventable, I think that's shameful. And so one of the things that I really think is contributing to, um, you know, maternal death is, is, is this issue around the fact that we don't make strategic investments. In fact, we've been making divestments in our healthcare infrastructure mm-hmm. within the closure of, region, you know, rural and regional obstetrical units. We have seen the divestment of the social safety net in terms of people being able to have all those things that they need to have a successful pregnancy and to be able to parent with dignity. So I, we have divested from our health services position. At the same time, you will get some people who will tell you that, you know, we have too much intervention. And there's been some very important work in public health uh, to really decrease our primary C-section rate and to really make sure that people you know, have their uh, uh, clinical needs met before, during, and after pregnancy. But one of the reasons you see almost every person who's hopeful to make a bid to run for president talking about maternal morbidity and mortality is one of the most shameful things that we could do something about right now is the fact that pregnant people in most states lose their Medicaid 60 days postpartum. So I think it's ridiculous that pregnant people, we, we decided that, that their infants can immediately become insurable on public insurance. But the people who birth them lose their publicly sponsored insurance 60 days after their birth. And that's at a time when they're still at risk of a lot of the complications from being pregnant, right? Things like uh, preeclampsia exactly. and gestational diabetes don't always just end exactly. on the birth date, right? Exactly. Exactly. And we know that many, many deaths, a, a good proportion of them occur within the, the first uh, seven days of postpartum, but some can go out, you know, as long as three months, some can go out to a year. So if you have unresolved underlying clinical conditions that can't be appropriately managed because you don't have insurance, that is a problem. I would also argue that the other thing that we could really do something about right now, because people feel so like this is such an overwhelming topic and, oh, there's nothing we can do. and These require longitudinal solutions. All of that is true, but there are things we could be doing right now. And the other outside of expanding 
the postpartum period where people are eligible for public insurance, the other thing that we could be doing is we need to call out states who purposefully did not expand Medicaid um, because we know that the moms and babies in the states where they expanded Medicaid, we know that insurance coverage alone improves health outcomes. And so it should really be unethical that if just the provision of coverage alone has an, a direct impact on improving health outcomes, that we should call out it as unethical who opted not to be able to do that under the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. Especially from a party that, that is all about the sanctity, the so-called sanctity of life, or protecting uh, babies. The, the, this, this party who is uh, against this, like here in Texas, uh, they would claim that they love babies and want more babies and all the babies. But then we have a horrible system here where it takes it can take women months to get into a doctor on Medicaid for prenatal checks. Mm-hmm. And then they're booted mm-hmm. from Medicaid immediately following. Well, not immediately, not on the birthday, but very soon after. Uh, so I'm hoping that, that people are going to be listening to you. I want to remind listeners that you are tuned in. Uh, smart as you are to issues for your tissues. Uh, I'm talking with Monica um, McLemore, who is a nurse and has her master's of public health and a PhD and, and knows what she's talking about folks. So <laughs> you can, uh, you can find more about her. If you visit the Bixby center for um, re- global reproductive health, uh, or if you go to read some of her work, uh, there is a piece in this month's scientific American uh, entitled, To Prevent Women from Dying in Childbirth, First, Stop Blaming Them. And I just, just reading it makes me put the stress on it. It's not written with the stress, but I'm feeling, I'm feeling the stress on that. Uh, there's been such an effort. Can we talk about that? Can, can we, we please? Can we can please? Because well, uh, too, yeah. too many people no, are saying to. these ladies, oh, they all have high blood pressure and they're obese. And it's like, that didn't start today. Hello. Right? Well, I have this. I have to tell you, so I wrote a piece for the um, uh, UC, USC uh, Annenberg School of, of Health Journalism last year, mm-hmm. and I, I, I wanted to entitle it, uh, Black Women Aren't Dying During Pregnancy Because They're Older, Sicker, and Fatter. But basically, I did get that sentence in the piece, because that is the narrative that you hear. I mean, even two weeks ago, the uh, Association of Anesthesiology put out a, a paper that that basically blamed obesity, hypertension, and diabetes. Oh, they got me um, salty. Causes for death, and I have to tell you that it just it drives me up a tree. So I have to break this down and explain it to you. First of all, there is nothing like being a nurse, and and I do want to tell your listeners I am a faculty member in the School of Nursing at UCSF too. So I think it's super important to lift up nurses because there's such an essential role to play in all of this. But I, you know, it was such a geek girl like unlocked situation to be asked by the senior graphics uh, design team at Scientific American to summarize the known data around uh, maternal morbidity and mortality in the United States. So when they first came to me, uh, they wanted to call that piece um, uh, why women in the United States are dying. And I said, no, you, you can't call it that. We, we, can't, we can't do that. And they were like, well, why? And I said, well, first of all, you know, we can't continue to put doom and gloom out in the world, right? There, there's a way for us to frame this where it's not all doom and gloom and that people don't throw their hands up and say this is a complex problem and we don't, we, we don't have solutions. So no, no, no. 
So then they came back and, and I said to them, you know, why don't we think about risk? Why don't, why, don't, why, don't, why don't we say something about that? And so they came back and they said, well, why don't we call it uh, the root cause of maternal morbidity and mortality in the United States? And I said, no, really can't do that. I said, because there's enough mother blame going on in the world. And mother blame is that, that pregnant people are exclusively responsible for the health outcomes of the, both themselves and their offspring and their progeny. And that's just not true. We live in a bigger environment and that that needs to be considered. And so they were like, okay, well, what do you think we should call it? And I was like, well, why don't we make this a solution-driven piece, contextualizing the horrific data and the disparities that we have. But then let's also lift up this whole idea that we shouldn't be blaming women and that as a collaborative group of individuals who not only care to come about moms and babies, but that we actually do, we're going to partner with them to figure out what the solutions are going to be. And the first solution is, is not to be blaming them. These are systemic problems and these are structural problems. And no individual one person uh, will have the capacity to save themselves in a context of where this is, these are systems problems. And so as I started working with the all women design team, and that was purposes, um, we really started to let our ideas bubble and create and, and, and flow. And it was a really incredible, I think the piece is beautiful. But what I really, really wanted to be able to stress was this is not women's fault. We have a system that's failing them. We have a, a taxpayer base that has divested from them and their communities. There are different models of care that we could be considering if we changed up our practices and were able to, to do different things, if we were able to diversify the healthcare workforce. There are, there are things that we can be doing that can all I think, turn the needle, particularly on the preventable death. So as we talked through, it was a very collaborative process. Um, you know, Jen, Jen Christensen and her team at Scientific American are amazing. Um, and they really work with me. We did a lot of back and forth, a lot of talking about what we really wanted this piece to be. And they listened to me. Uh, they trusted me. Um, and one of the things that, that they did, um, and a lot of people may not know this, but when you do data visualization projects for Scientific American, you get to maintain the copyright. And so it's proprietary to them for 90 days, and then it can be modified and used and branded in different ways. And one of the things I said to them was, I really want this to be able to live on and to really be a timely piece that can be built upon. And so they created it such that, that it, 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 I, I think it will be an evergreen piece because we were so intentional to its meaning that we really, really wanted to place women at the center um, and that their needs at the center, but not from a positionality of blame. And so I, I was really, really pleased with how it came out. I was very grateful to work with the team that I was able to work with. And they really beautifully brought to life um, the ideas that were really embedded in the data. They also did something very, very kind um, and something that I that really touched me in a way that I, I didn't understand. Um, they made the piece available uh, for free download during Black Maternal Health Awareness Week that was sponsored by the Black Mamas Matter Alliance um, so that people could access it for free and, and to really have it be an acknowledgement of that, that important awareness week to raise the public's um, attention to uh, the disparities in this issue. So it was incredible. And, you know, I think we need more women editors and we need more women graphic designers because working with this team was like one of the most empowering things that I'd ever done as a scientist. You know, it was so cool to have a group of women to sit and think with 
how can the science and our interpretation of it um, and our display of the science really um, be meaningful and impactful? And I think they, they really accomplished that and achieved that. And I'm glad they, they let me lead. Yeah, well, I, I think that, that it really was impactful, and I'll definitely share that again on Issues for Your Tissues Facebook page after the show tonight. I wanted to uh, ask you about that, uh, in part because they did a whole issue on reproductive health, and mm-hmm. uh, and I was wondering if you got to uh, be involved in more than just your piece or meet with some of the other contributors, or how, how did that work behind the scenes? <laughs> So let's be very clear about this. I broke down crying when I saw the entire issue because no one ever told me and I never asked what the theme of the issue was. I've always known that, so Scientific American has been around since 1845. Let's, Let's just be clear. It's one of the oldest magazines that communicates science to the public. Um, and I know that, that every May edition um, is the future of medicine. They always highlight some kind of healthcare thing. So I, I kind of knew that, but I had no idea. And I literally broke down crying. I was in the Chicago airport. I was traveling when the hard copy came out. Uh, I finally saw the entire edition and realized that it was on reproductive health. And so I had no idea. Um, of course, I know all the other authors, um, Virginia Soul and Maya Doonesbury, and in fact, uh, one of my colleagues at the Bixby Center for Global Reproductive Health, uh, Diana Green Foster, who led the Turnaway Study, she's cited in one of the pieces. Um, and as a professor, I teach the menstrual cycle to master's students, so to midwifery students, to family nurse practitioner students, to medical students, and to pediatric nurse practitioners in a class that I teach. And so I didn't even know that there was going to be this incredible data visualization of how the menstrual cycle works. I have been forever looking for a beautiful picture to explain that to learners. And, and there it was. So I was, <laughs> I was in tears when I saw the full edition of the, the, the magazine because I didn't realize the entire magazine was about women's health. And so it was an incredible thing that they did in devoting all of the visualization pieces in, in, in the May edition to women's reproductive health and, and to really be demanding better contraceptives and to really be educating the public about infertility. I, I had no idea. I didn't know until I actually thought of anything. Well, that, that can be, um, that, I know you were saying it was a heartwarming <laughs> thing, but I, I had never seen Crying. that either. So <laughs> it, it's exciting you know, to me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was great. And, and, and to have a, a science and evidence base, like all the scientists that are cited in the work, I've either read their work or I know them personally. So they, they went with actual scholars, public health scholars, demographers, sociologists, physicians. They actually went to, they came to us as women clinicians. Like, I don't know if people caught that either, but all the women that are cited in all the articles, or all the people that are cited in the articles for women. It was incredible. I, I didn't realize what they had done until I had held the actual magazine in my hand. So, yeah. So now think, it's mainstream, um, right? I mean, now hopefully this is really yeah. starting those conversations. I really hope so, because I think I, I like to remind people that one of the reasons why people use maternal child health in the global setting 
as a barometer for the health of the nation and the health of the nation's budget is because we know that women make up half the population, right? And as, and as long as that's true, and, and, and the, the tension, you know, especially in the United States has always been, you know, we were excluded like, from the scientific enterprise until like 1976. You know, women could not be directly recruited, especially people with the capacity for pregnancy, could not be directly recruited into scientific studies that were being funded by the National Science Foundation or, or the National Institutes of Health. And, and so it, it's just so odd that we are so behind in understanding, you know, the health and well-being and the unique things that, that individuals with the capacity for pregnancy need in order to be healthy and what those public health uh, interventions should look like. Um, that, that, that to have a complete issue that's invested in understanding, just scratching the surface, um, I think was both timely and revolutionary. I was, I was really excited to be a part of it, and I had no idea I was taking part in such a thing. Well, I want to remind listeners that you're tuned into Issues for Your Tissues. My guest tonight is Monica McLemore, who is a nurse and a clinician, as well as a scientist at the Bixby Center for Global Reproductive Health. We were just talking about her piece in May's Scientific American. We're going to take a quick break and be right back in one minute with more from Monica and a lot more Issues for Your Tissues. Please stay tuned. Welcome back to Issues for Your Tissues. I wanted to thank you for being tuned in to the finale of the May is for Moms Issues for Your Tissues, uh, all about maternal uh, outcomes and births and uh, all of the things related. Not that we're not doing it most of the other months of the year or weeks of the year, but that this is a special focus. And so I have a special guest, uh, Dr. Monica McLemore. Her current work reflects her training as a public health nurse, uh, trained in qualitative, quantitative, and molecular methods. Uh, nursing is a dynamic and hybrid field that meets patients and their families where they are, including the context and environment where experiences of illness or wellness occur. So, Monica, when we uh, when you were mm-hmm. talking earlier, what really struck me was that you pointed out that this is a, a, a societal issue. This isn't an individual issue. And there's something about the there's some kind of path, uh, pathological uh, application of the American need for individualism that puts all the onus of this this healthy delivery and healthy pregnancy on individual women. Uh, and and it's it's to the detriment of everyone in in society uh, when we when we think about it either directly or indirectly. Um, mm-hmm. How do you see that working for for patients or how? I mean, I've I've heard some some good birth stories and some horrible ones, and I've uh, met women who uh, have PTSD from their, their birth, just from mm-hmm. going to the hospital mm-hmm. to give birth. And it breaks my heart. And, and it's still hard, you know, to accept that, that somehow that they're not carrying some of the, the responsibility for, for that, especially with the, uh, with the verbal beatings that you get, if you go online and try to say as much, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, one of the things I would be really remiss because I called this out in other people. Um, and so I'm, I don't want to have to call it out myself, but to not talk about how structural racism shows up in policies and health services uh, provision 
in our policies and in our practices would be extremely uh, disingenuous. I actually think that that one of the things that's most insidious around, you know, the maternal health crisis, as, as some people call it, um, is is this idea that that we don't have in a human right to healthcare in the United States. There's only one protected class of people who actually have a human right to health care. And, and those are incarcerated persons. And the only reason that they have that right is because they are under the, the surveillance and control of the state. And so I think part of, of what's so, you know, frustrating, but part of what's so exciting in thinking about these structural issues is we actually have a way forward. If we really wanted to invest humans and time and money, we could really uh, invoke reproductive justice as a way forward to think through how to make sure that everybody gets what they need when they need it. So your listeners may have heard you know, the term reproductive justice be, be stated uh, after the president's State of the Union because Stacey Abrams actually used the phrase uh, in her rebuttal on behalf of the, the Democratic Party. Mm, God and love her for so it. Yay. I, I think I think it's important to tell people what that is. <laughs> so reproductive justice is both a theory and a praxis and it guides all of my work. And it is is developed uh, using a human an essential human rights frame. And and what it means is that people who uh, want to parent, want to birth, want to create family and kin have all the supports that they need in order to be able to make that possible in a healthy environment. It also means that for anybody who wants to uh, prevent pregnancy or to contracept or to be able to maintain their reproductive life course consistent with their uh, goals, have all the things that they need in order to be able to do that. It also posits that individuals have the right to parent the children that they have with freedom, dignity, support and 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 no fear of violence from any individual or any state or government and it also gives people the right to dis- disassociate sex from reproduction and it allows you to have a, a conversation about healthy sexuality about pleasure about consent and in a in a really uh, respectful and dignified way and so for me, that's a very, very different way of thinking about we, how we currently align health services, right? If you're lucky enough to have employer-sponsored health insurance, you can have a full range of services. But if you have public insurance, you know, you can only use that for certain things and under certain conditions, right? Yeah, and then so fight the whole time to get those things. Exactly. And then we also have a, a, a health care provider infrastructure that can make decisions whether they want to take care of you or not. Like that's, I just think that it is, we, it is time for us to have a different conversation about how we structure care, about how, you know, we allocate resources, both humans and, and money and time. We can have a whole different conversation where everybody could get their needs met um, and, 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 and to not traumatize people who come into our institutions. The first time I saw some public awareness around uh, birth trauma and maternal mortality and how people felt, you know, that their experiences were disrespectful. Um, 
I, I was heartbroken because as a nurse, not only did I know that everything that was being said was true, but I also knew that, that you know, us as a healthcare providing team, and I'm not going to throw any one discipline under the bus around this, but that we needed to do better. And, you know, I said at the beginning of this segment, you know, nursing is all I have ever done. You know, this is my job. I have been doing this. It's an identity. It is a, a worldview. It is an art, a science. And, and it, it, it hurts my heart to know that people are coming into our institutions and being harmed. So for listeners who are really skeptical about, oh, Monica, everybody's been talking about how structural racism is the thing that's killing black women. And I have no idea what that means. And I have no idea how that shows up in the health encounter. And so I, I, I explain it to people like this. If people have believed uh, mistruths or lies about black people, that there is a hierarchy of human value, that there's something inherently wrong with black people, um, then you may be in a position where you're not able to fully hear me and to fully listen. And one of the things that you need, especially in the obstetrical context, or in the reproductive health context, is you have to listen to the people that you're caring for, because otherwise you will miss or not recognize signs and symptoms of deterioration. And so if, if you're in a position where you can't recognize that someone's going downhill, and we know in reproductive health that can happen very quickly, then one could argue that it wasn't necessarily the hemorrhage that killed that person, but that perhaps the fact that we missed that it was occurring because we didn't believe someone. Right, right? and that's been shown. So studies, including the ones that you've been on, have, have shown or demonstrated that when a black woman has a complaint about a pain or something that it's not taken as seriously, or the same words coming from a white yeah. woman would generate a different response from healthcare providers, and that it's it, that is an awful thing to acknowledge or to, to see in it, you know, stark proof of that. And it, it, it's horrible. It really is. It really is. Or, you know, I, when I think about Serena Williams's case, and I said this to a room full of yes. nurses last year, let, let me, let me just deconstruct that really quickly. Please. This is a person who has won 22, 22 <laughs> grand slams, right? This is a millionaire married to another millionaire who generates her livelihood being one of the most fit people in the world, right? This is someone who uh, has lived with pulmonary embolism and clot her entire life. And if there's anybody who would know <laughs> that they were having some kind of physical change, it would be her. And yet she still had to be at the desk advocating for herself, you know, after her birth. Like, to me, that is, if there's anybody you're going to listen to, at least, and maybe I'm just being naive, but as a nurse, if, you're, I, if you come to me and you tell me you make your livelihood by using your physical body in peak condition to, that something's not right, like, I'm listening to you, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm, so for mm -hmm. me, it's this, it's this idea that, you know, and between her and Beyonce and a whole lot of other people, the idea that maternal morbidity and mortality, or you think about Shalone Irving, right? The incredible CBC, you know, dual master's PhD scientist. Oh my God, that broke my heart. Maternity, morbidity, and mortality, right? This is mm -hmm. one of our own. This is a public health sister. 
she shouldn't have died a week after having her daughter. That oh should not have happened. So I, I wanted right. to ask you about that. Well, I'm sorry. I have so many questions, but let me, I'll let you finish. I'm going to stop interrupting. No, 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 well, no, no, please do. Let's, let's, let's talk about that. So ProPublica, I had a ProPublica um, contributor on last year to talk about some of the, their, their segment, the, these hidden moms or these, these hidden cases mm-hmm. of, of maternal mortality. Mixes. Yes. Yeah. And, and the, the, uh, incongruous or the lack of standards in in recording these kinds of cases or these near misses or even the maternal mortality and how each state is is getting these numbers in a different way and there's no good central place for all of this to to be collected or anything like that going on and I know that you uh, contributed to that series uh, but uh, could you tell us a little bit more about that for listeners who weren't tuned in then and tell us yeah. about how you were able to contribute and and about uh, more about her because I just yeah. it was it was long and there were many tears involved and I think I was still pregnant and it was like it was my heart was broken my heart was just broken yeah yeah yeah, well, well, so as part of the Lost Mothers series, which is a joint um, uh, investigative reportive series with uh, Nina Martin from ProPublica and Renee Montaigne from uh, National Public Radio, NPR, um, and I, I was lucky enough to get to meet Renee Montaigne finally in person last mm. week when I was in Hollywood. It was really cool. Um, the Lost Mothers series has won our it's been a finalist for two Pulitzer Prize, and um, it, it has been award-winning, and it's been uh, involved in in the Pulitzer decisions. I think eight or nine times they've been working on that project for for quite some time. And they originally started interviewing individuals who were near misses or people who um, had had either lost a uterus or had a massive blood transfusion or had some uh, major uh, catalytic uh, catastrophic. Thing that happened to them. And so when they finally decided to, to pivot and focus on the people who were dying during pregnancy, the first story they actually told was the, was the wife of an anesthesiologist who happened to be a nurse and, um, and really talked through her harrowing story and how he as an anesthesiologist really felt helpless um, as he, he watched um, his wife uh, sort of deteriorates and, and, and ended up having help syndrome and, and she died. The second story that they highlighted was Shalom Irving's case. And she uh, was an incredible public health uh, practitioner. She'd been in the public health services uh, working at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Um, she had had a master's in public health or a master's in social work and then she had finished her PhD and she was studying black maternal health. And as a black woman and as a researcher, she found herself uh, happily pregnant and with her first child. And she too had a uh, clotting disorder, but like Serena Williams, it was well controlled and she had an uncomplicated pregnancy. And seven days after she gave birth to her daughter, she died. And she had been to the emergency department uh, twice, had seen her primary care practitioner, um, and had, had swollen legs and full on signs of preeclampsia postpartum, and, and she died. And so now her mother, Wanda Irving, is raising her daughter, her granddaughter. So, and there were so many, when you, when you look at the debrief of all the potential touch points, not only with the healthcare system, but 
even when you look at the Golden Triage record, I mean, when you look to see all the different times that potentially we could have saved her, um, it's heartbreaking. And there are so many multi-factors that went into where either her, the severity of her symptoms were either underestimated, underdiagnosed, or dismissed. There were places where people didn't even capture um, how swollen you know, her ankles and her legs were. Uh, there were places where blood pressure recording um, were inconsistent. I mean, it just was, it, it was bad. And so when you think through all the potential human error that we can have within health services and, and, and health care, when you think about how rare uh, maternal deaths are, and I do like to stress that for people, the disparity is really uh, shameful and it's really inappropriately and disproportionately borne by black women. Um, but, you know, we have between, you know, four and our birth rate has been dropping, but we have between four and, you know, five million births a year. And we're talking 700 to 900 people. Now, not to dis diminish, diminish that at all. I mean, we have real cancers where people have less, um, you know, less morbidity and mortality than that. But we invest dollars in resources to try and really find a cure and to try and really prevent and yet we don't see that same level of investment on, on the maternal health side. So I think, again, going back to what's one of the other things we can do besides, you know, expanding the time that people can be on public insurance and having states expand Medicaid to make sure that people have appropriate public coverage, ensuring that the workforce is equally or equitably distributed to be able to care for people with different types of, of, of insurance in different populations. One of the other things that we can be doing is to ensure, and this is one of the reasons why Representative Lauren Underwood and Representative Alma Adams created the Black Maternal Health Caucus. We don't have any specific one institute or any specific entity in the federal government that is exclusively designated for funding health services research, clinical research, or health services that are unique and specific to people with the capacity for pregnancy. The largest funder of research um, happens to be the Eunice Shriver Institute under the National Institutes of Health. And the public should know this because their taxpayers fund the National Institutes of Health. That's the National Institute of Child Health and Development. And so, you know, I think that we could, again, rethink about how we allocate humans and money and time and really be able to have a, a, a greater focus. And one of the things that Representative Underwood, who is a nurse, said when she launched the Black Maternal Health Caucus is that perhaps we need new dollars to really be investing in demonstration projects, um, particularly that are community-driven, really looking at interventions that can be able to help mitigate some of these poor outcomes. And one of those ideas was to be able to have things like group prenatal care, where people learn in, with their peers and they are able to really, really not only learn from each other, but learn from the clinical and the support staff. Really being able to build community within health services provision. A lot of people have looked, and, and I think that we're now up to nine states, have looked at doula support uh, in the pregnancy, childbirth, and postpartum period. Because we know that having social support and having an advocate with you during birth really can be helpful in terms of informational, educational and spiritual support during labor and birth. 
So there are things I don't want listeners to feel overwhelmed. I don't want listeners to feel like they just want to throw their hands up in the air. There are things that we can be doing. Some people have pointed out that we need implicit bias training. Some people believe that we need to diversify the future healthcare workforce. I think we need all these things. So in I, California, you guys have come up with, when I say you guys, that's, I'm sorry, that's kind of gendered. Uh, California has come up with a great solution that is actually making a difference in these numbers, right? There's this, uh, this mm-hmm. nurse training. Can you, can you tell me how, did, did you, did they come to you and ask you like they should have to begin with on how to yeah. improve this, these things or, or how did that come about? <laughs> you mean the bundle toolkit? Yes. And, um, uh, and 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 the simulations? No, yes. that that was not me. There are so many brilliant people that are that are working <laughs> on these different issues. So I get that people have been grateful for my very public work about this, but I I don't do this work alone. And there have been a lot of great organizations, uh, particularly the Association of Women's Health Obstetric and Neonatal Nursing, um, the A1 groups, um, the California Maternal uh, Quality Care Collaborative (CMQCC). There are a lot of great groups that have really been working on getting people what they need. And even when I think about Texas, I think about Marsha Jones and her incredible group at the AFIA Center who provide mm-hmm, tactical mm-hmm. support to, to pregnant birthing parenting people. So, you know, there have been a lot of great minds thinking about this. So one of the ideas that we had, what, uh, birth is, um, you know, obstetrical emergencies and things like that are rare, right? Most people will, if they choose to have a hospital-based birth or if they have a birth center birth or a home birth, most people will have a birth and they will live, right? So one of the things that we really needed to, we, when we did a survey, uh, and this survey came out of A1 and some of the work that, that Dr. Deb Bingham has done. She's also a nurse with a, a DRPH, a doctorate in public health. She did a study really looking at uh, nurses' um, knowledge around uh, how to identify postpartum complications. And because they had been so rare, you know, a lot of nurses just really didn't, they weren't on their, their A game around quickly being able to recognize those signs and symptoms and know what to do. So CMQCC decided about a decade ago that one, they wanted to start working on the, what they thought were the big preventable uh, causes of uh, severe maternal morbidity and or mortality. And so they, they, they wanted to hit up postpartum hemorrhage first, so bleeding too much after a birth. And they created toolkits for nurses. They created hemorrhage cards, like, you know, having a caddy. Who knew that having a caddy on your unit or a little container, you know, a plastic caddy that had all the equipment that you would need in order to be able to manage a postpartum hemorrhage, be readily available for anybody who needed to grab it and go, almost like a crash card. Who knew that that would be a significant driver of reduction in postpartum hemorrhage and death from postpartum living in California? That if people had to do simulation, meaning practicing, whether that's digital and using virtual reality or actually doing simulations of what each person would do in an emergency, knowing that time is crucial. Who knew that that would have such a huge impact? I mean, we, we decreased our maternal deaths by almost 30% in California. That's incredible. From those interventions alone, right? So imagine if we unleashed the creativity of humanity to really, really collectively get our brains around this. I bet you we could come up with some pretty nifty solution mm-hmm. but, but everybody can't be focused on the problem right so when right right we've heard so we've heard some of the presidential or democratic nominees for mm-hmm. the candidate mm-hmm. uh, talk about this issue but i've only seen substantive policy proposals from elizabeth warren that included and this is uh, uh 
I'm just stating this and I haven't chosen a candidate and I wouldn't do so on the show. And we'll talk about that next year. But, but uh, mm-hmm. she, she came up with a policy <laughs> saying that uh, hospitals that improve their rates would find uh, themselves doing better financially or hospitals that did not improve their maternal uh, health outcomes for women of color would, would face penalty, would face financial penalty. And that, that seems like it should resonate with the operators of these hospitals because they are focused on uh, dollars, of course, but it it also seems like it would hurt places that are already suffering. Kind of like when we we do this, uh, uh, school funding mm-hmm. where we take money and right. take it away from schools that are doing poorly. Mm-hmm. And then, mm-hmm. so it just seems like it's n- not quite the solution, but what do you think of something like that? Well, so the, the, when, when, uh, Elizabeth Warren was in Texas with you all at, um, at the event sponsored, you know, by, uh, she the vote, I guess it was. Mm-hmm. Was it she the vote? I believe. Um, mm-hmm. Two days after she talked about that plan, um, she released a single person op-ed in Essence Magazine, which is a historically black uh, publication uh, targeted towards black women, clarifying her position and clarifying her stance. And I was actually glad in that clarification that she reflected uh, on and had reached out to the Black Mamas Matter Alliance, which is um, an organization um, that I uh, serve on the advisory uh, board for. And just to say a little bit about the alliance, it is a uh, group of 21 kindred partners um, across 14 different states and about 20 collaborators as individuals. So the, the kindred partners are doula collectives, uh, podcasters, black women makers, uh, organizations, um, and then collaborators are individuals. So the Alliance reached out to her because we really wanted to uh, work with her to hone her idea. Because one of the unintended consequences of trying to financially incentivize hospitals and institutions, particularly to improve care for black moms, is the easiest way to not do that is to just stop accepting people to either have public insurance right. or to, right? I mean, so you're you're already, we were concerned that there would be a, a uh, draining of essential resources in the places that need the most. Right? Mm-hmm, <laughs> so mm-hmm. if you're going to figure out a, a stick, you also want to make sure you have a carrot too. And, and one of the things that I've been saying, you know, as we move into debate season and, and you know, hearing different people's ideas, is that no one thing is, is going to fix maternal morbidity and mortality or maternal health outcomes. It's not one thing. It, it will be multiple things. It will be several things over time. And not every one thing will work in all geographies. Rural needs may be different than urban needs. And we know that maternal morbidity and mortality, at least the way it's experienced by Black women, is independent of education and income. So it doesn't matter if you're a rich black woman, poor black woman, if you have employer-sponsored insurance, or if you have public insurance, it doesn't matter what your educational level is. There is no protective factor for black women when it comes to, you know, maternal mortality. 
Right. And I, our, our oh. time, I'm sorry, I know you're about to summarize. Go ahead. We've got just a minute left. <laughs> so we need multi-pronged strategies to really, really look at this from a very, very comprehensive way. Yes. So it was a nice idea to drop into the ethos, but it can't be the only idea we drop into the ethos. That is so right. Uh, I, I just wanted to follow that up and um, share this Malcolm X quote from, you know, before you were born. <laughs> Say, mm-hmm. He said, the most disrespected woman in America is the black woman. The most unprotected woman in America is the black woman. And the most neglected woman in America is the black woman. And I, I'm hoping that, that soon those words won't carry that same weight or meaning or will have changed with the work that you are doing and that all the Black Mamas collectives are doing. And I'm so excited to talk to you in the future about your next study and how things are improving. So please uh, keep up all the work and we're going to be following you with nerd crushes, I promise. Well, I'm very grateful for you. I'm grateful for your listeners and you know, as taxpayers, we really need to understand, like, this could all be different, and we could really make it so. Thank you so much. Have a great night. Thank you. Thank Bye. you. You too. Okay. Bye. Bye.